while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Andrea Douglas, Ph.D., so that would be Dr. Andrea Douglas to you, Executive Director of the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. Good afternoon, Andrea. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm having a good day. Things seem to be just beautifully falling into place, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. I, I, I just want to start off by saying there was a man I knew... Uh, years ago, who happened to be an African-American. He was a Republican. We had tremendous conversations, and he taught me a great deal about black history that I just had never never known. Until I met Dr. Andrea Douglas, no one had begun to even touch my knowing more about people we rarely hear about. So we're going to talk about the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center and what's going on there, and what Andrea Douglas is building there. But we're also going to talk about the Drawathon, which is one of the programs she's done. We're going to talk about Because of Them We Can, and we're going to talk about Andrea Douglas. So, with that introduction, Andrea, you can start wherever you like. What's going on at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center? I think one of the main things that I want to talk about is, is our exhibition. Um, we opened the first phase of our permanent installation called Pride Overcomes Prejudice um, October of 2015, which was the 150th anniversary of the original opening of the school. Yes. Um, and our anticipation is to open the next phase of it by October 2017. You know, in terms of how one puts together an exhibition, some would say, you know, this is taking an awfully long time to do. But the truth of it is, is this particular in this period that we're going to address, it is a period where the history is a little less available. Yes. The, the history that we first introduced in the exhibition was from 1865 to about 1920. Mm. And in many, many ways, the, rec- the record of that history 
it's pretty second. There's lots of places that you can look to it. Um, the Jefferson School starts as a Freedmen School, so you can look to the Freedmen Aid Society papers. You can mm-hmm. look to the Freedmen Bureau's papers. You know, there's, there's lots of places to look. And even in Charlottesville, there was an African-American newspaper in the early 20th century, 1910 or so. Mm. But you lose that newspaper. And you also then, as a consequence of Jim Crow, lose the ability to find out information. Yes. Um, and the reason being is that at the beginning in the late 19th into the early 20th century, mm-hmm. as you're moving into Jim Crow, as you're thinking about the development of a segregated society, mm. the idea of the value of black people's lives and histories and stories become lessened. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when Virginia in 1902 codifies its brand new constitution, mm-hmm. it, it codifies essentially a, a, a very clear and definitive uh, segregation between blacks and whites. Mm. So hanging, grabbing this history, understanding what it means in Charlottesville, Virginia, articulating it in a way that allows us to understand not only the local, but how the local relates to the uh, to the regional or the global is what the work is. And so, you know, between now and then, we are going to do our last push for artifact. So we're going to make a call to those people who are alumni, to those people who are part of the community who are trying to gather information yes. about Charlottesville, generally speaking, mm-hmm. to, to, to you know, open up their attics, open up their family books mm. one last time for us so that we can put together an exhibition that is compre- as comprehensive as we can. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I'm no, just, as, as I listen to you, of course, I remember the, the times that I visited uh, Jefferson School and the Heritage Center there and you and conversations we uh, had. And while we were talking in general about the center and in, about specifics that you wanted to develop there, people okay. would come in with... Um, even second generation, you know, would come in and bring uh-huh. old magazines or or newspaper clippings or letters, and uh-huh. it always because you know for history for me you go and you pick up a book which as it turns out didn't have the whole history, but uh-huh. you know there it was in the library in a section marked history. Whereas for right. the uh, for you and uh, and the Heritage Center, the African American Heritage Center. You really have to dig for this. Here's a prime example of something, right? Someone yes. brought me just the other day an Ebony magazine from March 1965, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, Ebony magazine is a national uh, African-American magazine. Yes. But what, what, they, what they've highlighted for me in that magazine and is a, an advertising. Mm. Which is an amazing advertisement, and it's an advertisement for um, Super Jet Razorless Shaving Cream. But huh. the person who is in the advertisement is Roosevelt Brown, right? Ah. Now, in Charlottesville, we have Roosevelt Brown Boulevard, yes, right? Yes, yes. Roosevelt Brown grew up in Charlottesville, and so this little tidbit Something that we might have missed, yes. something that we might um, not know anything about, really adds to this history of this person, right? So yes. it says, Roosevelt Brown, a tough New York giant football star who has a tough shaving problem, uses Superjet. 
Now that's an amazing thing, an amazing object yes. that that we acquired. We have been recently given a um, a wonderful original photograph of a 1932 graduating class. Oh wow! Now, that while well, that's significant yes. is because Jefferson becomes an accredited high school in the 1930s. Oh. So this 1932 graduating class is the class that two years after. Uh, is graduating two years after uh, a certain kind of democratization has mm-hmm. occurred, a certain kind of regimentation has occurred. I mean, in order to be an accredited institution, you must have teachers who have passed certain kinds of tests. Yes. Which changes the tenor completely of black education. Mm-hmm. You know, really does change that tenor. And so it's things like that that you know, like this Ebony article that on on face value, mm-hmm. we wouldn't necessarily know about. Mm. But having this really important object come in our, into our hands is, is very important in advancing the history. Because again, 1932, I mean, 1932, as an object uh, for that um, graduating class, you know, what's going on in 32 in this country? Well, the country's within, is in the throes of the Depression. Yes. The Depression has attacked Charlottesville in, the 19, in 1930 is when you begin to see the, the sort of, uh, of, of implications of a country that's been in Depression since 1928. Right. So, you know, being able to put these kinds of histories, with, contextualize them within these larger stories is what we're after in this next exhibition. So I'm really sort of excited about it, hoping that you know, people hear about this part and and really want to work with us to give us the opportunity to present the history in its most complete form. The the other thing that I kind of even wanted to talk about, too, was, you know, what's happening in the 1920s here. Mm-hmm. You know, we just went through a series. I sit on the, uh, the Blue Ribbon Commission that's dealing with public spaces and race and monuments and things yes. like that. Yes. You know, lots of work and lots of research was done around the two monuments in Charlottesville, mm. um, the Robert the Lee statue yes. and the Jackson statue. Yes. And when they were placed in our community and why they were placed in our community. And so, you know, we are again going to talk about a school opening in Charlottesville in 1926, the high school that African-American people had been calling for since the 1870s Mm. within the context of increased clan activity within the context of uh, a a beautification project within the context of all manner of things within the context of you know the racial integrity act from 19 that was impacting 1924 through 1927 Mm. what are the implications of building a school that then turns into a community meeting space Mm. um that holds currency for 30 years thereafter. You know, Jefferson closes his stores in 1965 and reopens as an integrated sixth grade in 66. So all of those kinds of things are what we hope to bring to Charlottesville, certainly, but to people who visit this area. Um, Because they're visiting because of Monticello, UVA, Montpelier, Mm -hmm. uh, Highland. So the question happens, what happens to these people who mm-hmm. leave these places? And we have the capacity to answer those kinds of questions. 
you know, it, it really it really is the Jefferson School City Center and the, the Jefferson School uh, African Heritage Center. It is such an opportunity. This, first of all, the 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 history of the site itself. Uh, you know, people probably don't know this, so we we should uh, certainly not uh, people not in Virginia, and we're heard all over the world. So, tell us a uh, touch on a bit. You're in Vinegar Hill, yes. Uh, and yeah. what happened to Vinegar Hill, what it was before uh-huh. what happened to it. And also, uh-huh. in, in our work together for the Jefferson School and the, the initial video there, I discovered, um, you know, doing my research, I discovered that the this, there was a period of time when the governor of Virginia closed Virginia schools in order to not have uh-huh. them integrated. So touch uh-huh. on some of that history for us. Sure. Well... So as I, I said earlier, you know Jefferson is uh, a Freedmen's School. It opened yes. in 1865. It comes to its location where it is now in 1894, mm. and then it's opened as a graded school. Mm. And the high school opens in 1926, and then in by 1951, it's no longer a high school. It yeah. is a an elementary school. Yes. But there is a moment which you can mark with Jefferson, that of the building of Charlottesville. Mm. It's the industrialization of the city, and the yes. industrialization of the city occurs simultaneously with with the increase in size in Jefferson and with the, with the growth of a main street. You know, we have a document from one of the original teachers in 1875 that mm. says when she first came here in the 1860s, people could barely read and write, and as she's looking out her window, Nine, ten years later, she's seeing businesses grow along the street, um, houses grow along the street. So, you know, the development of an industrial Charlottesville that also has to do with the building of two railroads, the way in which the railroad impacts cities and how they become cities. You know, Charlottesville has all of that in its history. The African-American community grows up around that, you know, from the point of Jefferson, if you drop a pen and you go a mile around, that's the African-American community, and it's growing up within the, within, with relationship to kind of a service industry. Sure. Mm. So Vinegar Hill is growing in that way. Mm-hmm. So where we're situated is actually right on that border. We're yes. on 4th Street. Vinegar Hill goes 4th Street more and then east. Mm-hmm. And so by, you know, and at the same time, you also can chart education and urban renewal. They're happening, um, integration and, and, and urban renewal are happening, um, not con- simultaneously, but very close in proximity mm-hmm. to each other historically. Mm-hmm. And urban renewal is happening all across the country. Yes. It's not a Charlottesville phenomenon, it's an everywhere phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it just happens to be impacting African-American communities because mm-hmm. originally these communities are placed in the least desirable properties mm-hmm. and as communities grow and you build your highways and you build your roads and you build all these other things they become more desirable so in Charlottesville that's part of the story mm. but ultimately the black community creates for itself its economic center its social center yes it's where you find your well-off members of your society your mm-hmm. doctor your lawyer or um, 
the affluent barber mm. has their homes on the top of the hill. Mm. You find your your the stores where you can go to shop for your food, where you can go to shop for your clothing in a segregated community. Yes. And this, this, the, the impact of it is that ultimately, if you trace and chart the history of the community, there is a moment where Vinegar Hill is at its apex, and then it begins to decline, and mm. then it begins to be described not as a, a vibrant space, but as, you know, an eyesore. Mm. Or... A, a, a dilapidated area that, um, in the face of the city's desire to rehabilitate its own downtown and and the availability of government funds in order to accelerate or allow for that process, these things happen. Mm. So, essentially, they build a connector road through this area of the city. Now, the problem with this is the question of once you decide on an urban rural project, urban mm-hmm. renewal project, what do you do with the black people? Where mm-hmm. do you put them? Mm-hmm. Right? Once you are forced to integrate your schools, where do you integrate? Right? Mm-hmm. So these two questions in this town, at least, are inextricably tied. Yes. There are places that you cannot put. Now, also tied to this is, you know, 1964 is, is Civil Rights Act. Yes. 1965 is Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also tied in Charlottesville to the development of public housing and the implications thereof. Mm-hmm. So by 1964, Vinegar Hill is no longer a site. Mm-hmm. It's been completely bulldozed and left vacant for 20 years afterwards. Wow. Um, you know, and it is in our contemporary description of what a, a mixed-use community looks like, it is that. You know, there are whites and blacks living in Vinegar Hill, mm-hmm. not as many whites as blacks, but nonetheless. Property ownership is primarily owned by whites, but blacks, affluent blacks and middle-class blacks own property there. Mm-hmm. And the poorest sector of the community uh, owns property or, or lives there, rent there. Yes. And it's, it's, it's in those places that the decisions can be made. And the idea was you move them into public housing. For the first time, people will have running water. For the first time, people will have heat. Mm. That was the the sort of general notion. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in 1964, most of the people who lived in Vinegar Hill could not even vote for the referendum that would cause them to lose their houses. Mm. Because in 1964, poll tax were still in effect. Yes. Literacy tests were still in effect. They couldn't even afford to vote for these things. So it really has that sort of you know, the sort of implications of, of of white supremacy, implications of what happened post-15th Amendment, post-1870 in Southern America. These are the, the Vinegar Hill and other sites like in Norfolk and Newark and Oakland. You know, we can keep naming yes. places. Yes. The implications of those things back to, you know, these constitutions that are written in 1902. And the 1902 Virginia Constitution was definitively aimed at turning back all of the advances that the 1868 Constitution had given to black folks oh my in goodness. Virginia. All right. Uh, wow. 
that uh, that is the, a, a tremendous <laughs> yeah it's a tremendous foundation however f- f- on which to build in this conversations we're going to take a break we've been talking to dr andrea douglas who is the executive director of the jefferson school african american heritage center in downtown charlottesville a historic site uh, with a, a long history still in the making stay with us we'll be right back Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. These days, action movies are defined by explosions, hot chicks, and cartoonish villains. However, as proven by Danish director Nicholas Winding Refn's masterful drive, an action movie does not have to be loud and bombastic to be effective. It can actually have an intelligent and artistic quality and still be thrilling. Ryan Gosling stars as the nameless driver, a stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver for criminals. After meeting a new neighbor and her young son, he agrees to help her recently paroled husband rob a pawn shop to pay off a mob debt. When the robbery goes south, driver is forced to right some wrongs and protect his neighbor and himself. The film is riveting. Goslin's portrayal emanates power and confidence, and his detached demeanor suits his character's complexity. The opening sequence of the film, in which he and two burglars evade the cops on an eye-popping chase through Los Angeles, sets the character up and makes it impossible for us not to root for him. Albert Brooks's performance as Bernie Rose, a movie producer turned mobster, is another highlight. Brooks imbues the character with both wit and malice. Reffin, who won Best Director at Cannes for his efforts, and a brooding soundtrack by Cliff Martinez, have made Drive into a modern marvel. Drive, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Dr. Andrea Douglas, the executive director of the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. And one of the things we were chatting about in between the uh, segments during the break here is that uh, some people think that the African American Heritage Center is just about African Americans. And the whole point, this the fact that history for Americans, most Americans, including myself, who, who was taught history, has been an incomplete one. We've only gotten one version, one side of the story, if you will, one piece of the pie. Whereas at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, you can go in and there are a number of programs, exhibits, and a a computer uh, lab where no matter what you look like or where you come from or what your history or background, you can research that ancestry regardless of the pigmentation of your skin. How's that, Andrea? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell us about this this facility and and what it sure. uh, uh, brings to the and offers to the community. Sure. So one of the things that we do here is local history. So we have a Isabella Gibbons local history center. Yes. And certainly our main goal is to collect the local history of African Americans. But what we also provide are a series of databases mm-hmm. that are not 
you know, solely for the use of African-American people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got the full complement of Ancestry.com. We've got Heritage Quest. We've got all of these sort of search engines, and we're connected to the Library of Virginia and the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. And so if you are interested in history, you you could easily come here. And why, why choose here as opposed to some other place mm -hmm. like UVA Library or... Um, you know the, the the public library, yes. um, and, and and I think it's because you know those other places, the access to the information is is competitive. Mm -hmm. You know you've got to be able to park, you've got yeah. to be able to figure out what you are interested in, where you go, how do you get access to it. Here it's very sort of clear cut. You yes. Park easily, and then you come upstairs, and you know and there the, it is. Um, and there it is. Yes. If you are adept at it, then you can go ahead and, and, and do your own searching, you know. And, you know, the full version of Ancestry.com is costly. And so, you know, you come here and free of charge, you can do the work that you um, want to do. Yeah. And, and I think that's an underutilized and underknown quality of the Heritage Center. Mm -hmm. um, I think the assumption is that if you're not black, you don't have a place here. But even in saying that, you know, our mission is not to create a space solely for African-American people. Mm -hmm. Our mission is to demonstrate the influence of African-American people in our community, yes. uh, locally, globally. If you believe that, as you're talking about, the kind of, you know, American history is American history. It's not black history. It's not white history. Mm -hmm. It's American history. Yes. And the closer that we get to that understanding... Mm -hmm. And acceptance, the closer we get to the understanding of who we are as a community. Yes. And I think that is one of the main things that people who utilize our space, who come to our exhibitions, who come to our lectures and such, that they understand it. But it really has to be a broader sense. Mm -hmm. I We do tours, for instance, with high school students. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a commitment to getting the Jefferson School story known yes. in our public schools. And it's a necessary thing. How do you create ownership? Mm -hmm. How do you can create uh, community activism? How do you create those kinds of roles for your, your youth that then lead to a vibrant community if they don't know the full breadth of who they are yes. within the space that they live? Yes. And I think... That is what we hope to offer here. You know, it's not the other side of the story. It is the story. Yes. And, you know, it's really interesting. I once had the opportunity to look at a social studies book from 1964. Mm. And, you know, if you're in high school in 1964, you're in your 80s, 90s now, right? Oh, wow. And the kind of information, yeah, you know, if you're 20 in 1960, you're 18 in 1964. Mm -hmm. So... 30, 40 years later, 50 years later, 40, 50 years later, sure. you are uh, 60s, 70s, right? Yes. So if you think about that, this is a generation of people who were reading things in the Virginia textbooks like, you know, it was Africans were much happier to be in America than they were in Africa, mm. where they were, you know, they were not subject to the clubbings and warfare of other tribes. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they liked being enslaved. Yes. And that's a really... You know, as an ingrained idea in someone's psyche, in someone's education, the thing that you believe because this is what you were told, that's a difficult thing to sort of change 
and eradicate. Yes. You know, there are very few of us who read history books beyond a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a specific interest in that. So this is the moment of our of our of our understanding of the world around us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we get to that place where we are all reading and understanding the same exact story? That's what makes places like us more necessary and relevant. Sure. Um, you know, the Jefferson School is, you know, in 1870 is when the public school uh, system occurs um, mm -hmm. in the South. Mm -hmm. The Jefferson School becomes a public school. It is the push of parents in, and, 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 and students in, from the Jefferson School that leads to integration of, of schools in this area. Mm. If that history doesn't occur, the other history doesn't occur. Exactly. It's, it's relational, exactly. right? Exactly. So you can't know one without knowing the other. It's not, it's not clear. It's not um, complete. Exactly. Exactly. So. All right. Um, I'm, I'm not changing the subject at all. I'm just moving. I'm just moving across the uh, auditorium a bit to tell uh -huh. us. Tell us about the art gallery. I have seen some great work happen in there, or displayed, yeah. or hung there. Well, um, we have a contemporary gallery. Uh, we do four exhibitions a year. Mm. We try and do two local exhibitions or regional exhibitions, and then two further afield. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, and, and the two local exhibitions are really to support the local African-American artists. We only show works by African-American artists or about African-American people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I like about this is that we are interdisciplinary, but we really also want to create uh, sort of temporal relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, good art comments on on the, the contemporary moment you want to understand where that moment comes. It's easily easy to walk from the historic gallery into this contemporary gallery. Mm. We try and program our contemporary shows and the lectures that we give in relationship to that. So the information that one or the themes touched on in the in the contemporary art gallery are somehow discussed and described in another form, mm. whether it be lecture, film or, you know, conversation of some sort. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we hope it, it works. We have, we opened, for instance, when we first opened it, we opened with Jefferson Tinder. Jefferson Tinder, who is a mid-career artist, um, has won some significant prizes, like the High Prize, has, has done some significant installations, like um, he won, a, he was uh, commissioned by, by Amherst College to mm -hmm. do a piece. And so, you know, he kind of looks at, through video, the sort of point 1960s on of African-American history mm -hmm. and looking at it from the point of view of work and what work looks like and yes. what black work looks like mm -hmm. and how blacks and whites, you know, integrate into space. Mm -hmm. um, a show we just recently closed this year, a summer show. Mm -hmm. We did in um, in collaboration with Look Three mm -hmm. oh, yes. um, of mm -hmm. work by Sheila Pre Bright. Um, yes. She's one of the foremost activist artists out um, working today. Mm. Um, her show was called Hashtag Nineteen Sixty, where oh. she was creating a relationship between the civil rights movement of the '60s and the civil rights movement um, of today, yes. known as Black Lives Matter. Yes. So we, you know, so we try and do all of those kinds of current exhibitions, but at the same time support our local artists, you mm -hmm. know, 
when we first started, there weren't very many places where one could see the work of a local African-American artist in mm. this town. Mm-hmm. It's gotten a lot better over the course of the last three years. But how do you develop an artist community? Where do you, where do you place these objects so that people can begin to see them as, as part of the overall art scene mm-hmm. that um, for Charlottesville was happening on the downtown mall? And if you couldn't get in the gallery on the downtown mall, where were you going to show? Mm. So, and and those are some of our most popular and successful um, exhibitions here. Because um, an artist like Frank Walker, for instance, who we showed in 2011, we showed in 2013, and we'll show again in another two years. Mm -hmm. He is from here. His family is from here. People know him well. They know his work. And so... To have the opportunity to engage with him as a part, as an artist, as opposed to someone who, you know, in passing on the street, is a really important thing for the larger community. Mm. Even um, oh. it gives them a sense of their own cultural ownership and being and self. And to continue to facilitate that, we offer the Heritage Center as almost a, an artist cooperative. Yes, you know, we bring artists of color together to talk about their work, mm-hmm. give them a space to give them an opportunity to do work. And in return, we hope that A, they'll mentor younger artists and B, help us develop our programming because it, it's hard to, to, to program for 350 days out of the year, yes. you know, to continuously refresh what you've got going on. You always want new ideas. You want new uh, perspectives. Uh-huh. Um, and our goal is to diversify the arts in Charlottesville. Make sure that, that, that when we're thinking about an American cultural landscape, that it involves and includes the African-American voice as well. Speaking of which, tell us a bit about Because of Them We Can, Unique's mm-hmm. very unique approach. <laughs> <laughs> had in uh, about two years ago yeah. um, by an, a- an artist named Unique Jones. And um, she also is another one of these sort of activist uh, photographers. Yes. You know, um, for many people, the Trayvon Martin incident was a, 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 a turning point. Yes. The idea of a young black man gunned down and um, because of Florida's law you know, Zimmerman gets off. That mm-hmm. was a catalyst for lots of people, and it was a catalyst for Unique. Yes. She started a Facebook uh, program uh, known as I Am Trayvon Martin, where she had young people dressed in hoods, and she photographed them. Mm-hmm. And that took off, and so celebrities were being photogra- photographed at that point. And, yes. And, you know, there was a note, you know, at one point, I think Obama said, I could have been Trayvon Martin. So yes. there's kind of sense that this could happen to anyone mm-hmm. um, was really what she what she started out with. But what was unique about Unique is the medium that she used yes. in order to get this, the social media. So really the sort of way in which artists are using social media is highlighted in her show. Mm-hmm. The show that we took, because of them we can, began as a project just for Black History Month. Mm. where she was going to, during that time, in response to something that her five-year-old son said to her, document through a child's body African-American history. Mm. Um, 
the project went from 28 days to 365 days. Wow. So the photo essay is images of or representations of important African-American people, some well-known, others not so well-known, and their words, you know. So, you know, people like Maya Angelou, Frederick Douglass, uh, was the wide gambit, but it's an ongoing project. Mm -hmm. And the educational piece of it is it really gives two things. One, people, the breadth of African-American history, the breadth and width of African-American involvement in the development Mm -hmm. of of, of American society, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And then also, on the other half of that, to offer for kids the opportunity to see themselves as great people. Yes, because, right. uh, just so we make this clear, she found children who uh-huh. sort of resembled famous uh, black icons, and she uh-huh. photographed them in similar clothing or uh, props or whatever, uh, uh-huh. but not only uh, iconic personalities and celebrities, but uh, I guess that's redundant, but uh, but to, as you've pointed out to me before, the everyday uh, African American uh-huh. and the children in going through this photographic experience learned more about their own history and and their exactly. value as as people today. Tell exactly. us. Exactly. We she did a portrait of a young boy dressed as Malcolm X, uh-huh. and we asked her, you know, do the, do these figures resonate with the kids? And she said, yeah, this this young boy began to dress like Malcolm X. Hmm. He began to sort of take on that asset. So mm-hmm. I think those are tremendous things. But what joins uh, uh, Sheila Prebright and Unique Jones and then a third artist that we had here, Julie, mm-hmm. um, together, and June's show was about black fatherhood, uh-huh. was this notion of telling your own story, mm-hmm. of countering the, the, the perception of black people, mm-hmm. of giving an alternative description and a discourse from the voice of black people as opposed to the other way around. Mm. And what you find are, in all of these images, what ties everything together is the basic sort of notion of humanity, the way in which uh, African-American people are dehumanized in in, 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 in media or dehumanized. I mean, Trayvon Martin could not have happened if he was not considered to be a threat because he was wearing a hoodie, mm, you know, mm-hmm. what does that, what does that infer about, you know, the value of a black body? Exactly. All of these artists consider the point of view of the value of that black body. Mm. We, as a heritage center, even when we're producing something, are trying to articulate the value of the black body, not because we feel like we have to convince people that we're valuable, mm. because, but because it's an inherent truth. Yes, yes. Right? Okay. It's a human truth. It's a human fact. And so, again, you respond to the work that we do here because you are humanists and you believe in the inherent goodness and, and value of people, generally speaking. Yes. Um, yes. And so that's why we do what we do. Excellent. 
we're going to have to run, but let's tell everyone, first of all, if they can still get uh, the book, uh, Unique's book, because of them, uh-huh. we can, uh, and how to do that. But your website and how do we get in touch with the uh, Jefferson School African American Heritage Center? How do we book tours? What Give us whatever information. Well, sure. Um, let's also begin with the fact that this is, you know, the time of year where we're giving. So mm-hmm. if you feel like you are interested in the work that we do and you want to give a gift, our website is www.jeffschoolheritagecenter.org. And anywhere on that website um, will lead you to booking tours. But if you call us or send us an email at admin at jeffschoolheritagecenter.org, we'll respond to your requests. So, yeah, that's how you get in touch and, with us. You, and the telephone you know, number, you and, the, and you did say Jeff, J-E-F-F, right? J-E-F-F, like Jefferson, but yes. jeffschoolheritagecenter.org. And the phone number is 434-260-8720. Which is on the website as well, of course. Yes. Fantastic. And photographs, and the uh, if you have not seen the Jefferson School, uh, what has happened in just three years, Andrea mentioned that, but it bears mentioning again, three years. I saw it uh-huh. when it was concrete and no heat, and she and I there talking about all the things that she wanted to accomplish, and three years later, she is so far down that road of, of mission, and the mission keeps growing. I guess it will mm-hmm. never stop. Uh, would would you say that, Andrew? Yeah. Well, you know, between the collaboration of people like yourself and others, you know, your your mission has to always be be fluctual, yes. fluctuating. We we believe that we are in the business of an intellectual process. Yes. That it is about the mind and the heart. So none of those things are, are stable quantities. There you are. So you know, we grow as the heart and mind grows. Well, I, I hope things are going as well as they sound. I know it it seemed that first year, at least my impression, you were a one-woman show, but you have certainly pulled together a team and, and now focusing specifically on the African-American Heritage Center as its executive okay. director. I, I would mention that at one point you ran the entire foundation, so um, right. <laughs> I don't think your days have gotten shorter, but but uh, well, well, I, I just, I'm just so pleased to know you and to have experienced the Jefferson School on a number of occasions, the last of which, a kind of thing, I know I said we had to go and we do, but the last time I was at the Jefferson School, you actually hosted a... Um, we streamed live, right? The yeah, opening yeah. of the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And that was yeah. just so impressive. Uh, I know to most people, streaming live isn't so, it's such a great thing. But for me, it was a great experience. And then to be able to have it on this huge screen in your auditorium there, which I first saw again as a concrete, cold place, and you stood there <laughs> and pointed out where things would be, and there they are. And there they are. Yeah, well, our goal is, you know, we are, you know, we're tech savvy. We want to be in those places. We want to be able to do distance conversations. We want to make sure that we're bringing the best of the world to Charlottesville as, and meeting, you know, Charlottesville has, as they say, more PhDs than many places. So there's an intellectual uh, capacity here that we want to meet as we are trying to, at, at all levels, educate. Um, 
you know, I'm not from Charlottesville. I came here to get my PhD, mm-hmm. and I've learned this history just like other people. And I often say that, you know, Charlottesville is a crucible um, between the kind of antebellum histories, the yes. founding fathers' history that yes. get told at Monticello and at UVA, places like this. You know, what we're living in and and, and looking at ultimately set some example for the rest of the world because these are our, the world's origin stories. Yes. They happened here. Yes. You know, the development of a democratic sensibility. Yeah. You know, we can point to things that are part of Charlottesville's own history. And so being able to elevate the African-American story, which elevates, in fact, our greater understanding of, of as I said before, America. It's, it's wholly important. Yes. And I couldn't do it without my volunteers, but it totally is a labor of love. It's a total labor of, of curiosity. Every day you find something new, you hear a new story. So if those things matter to you, a place like this or any other places like this should be important to you as a sort of general space of understanding. All right. We're going to stop there because that is that is definitely the call to action to come visit, at least online, if not in actual physical presence. We, the center is located on 4th Street in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. I think everyone should hear the call and answer. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrea Douglas, for being on the Reasonable Voices show today. We wish you all the very best and hope to see you again soon. Okay? Okay. Thank you, Orlando. All right. Marcello. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from the Reasonable Voice. discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Imagine living a full year of your life surrounded by a largely invisible enemy with absolute intent to kill. Restrepo was filmed in the Korengal Valley of Afghanistan. Journalist Sebastian Younger, author of The Perfect Storm, and Tim Hetherington, who was later killed covering the Libyan Civil War, faced considerable danger to make it. Unless we've been in combat ourselves, we citizens can never fully understand what our brothers and sisters in arms are facing. This brave documentary is as near as many of us will come. This is close-up reality. Furious firefights suddenly erupting out of unbearable boredom. A deadly enemy always there, unseen, maneuvering, waiting. We see the machismo that allows these soldiers to face another day. We see that despite the mistrust and often the hatred in the eyes of the local populace, our soldiers continue to do as ordered, try to win hearts and minds. Admirably, Younger and Hetherington bring no politics into their mix. Restrepo is a visceral record of soldiers fighting for their buddies, the one on the right, the one on the left, and those taken from them who are no more. Andy Film Minute, not in theaters. Discovery Through Rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Hope in Sanctions, Obama versus Trump, Mothers and Daughters. 
When I began writing about a president-elect oblivious to one president at a time, rushing to make America 1953 again, Carrie Fisher died. After Debbie Reynolds joined her daughter, I began again, because in addition to these tragic losses, giving up on each other, abandoning the courage of civility and the wisdom that the rising tide lifts all the boats, in 2016 we lost our faith in reason. Greed for power over the less powerful is America's top-down malignancy, but trumpets cannot produce Amerigeddon without our duplicity. However, if we seek shade in the shadows of infamy, all inherits the wind of what is past as prologue. Anachronisms Nixon, Mitch McConnell, and Bush Cheney mushroomed America's declining health, but in 2016 the hyenas gathered to feast. I want to be associated with interesting quotes, asserted Donald Trump. Does the man who would be king believe humanity is a three-ring circus awaiting a command performance of P.T. Barnum in fake news tweets? We the people don't need a Ph.D. in common sense because it's readily available to an open mind. 2017 is neither time for silence nor physical violence. Boycotting an inauguration proclaims to the world we will keep our democratic republic with or without an electoral college, proving we've lost neither our souls nor the good fight. However, putting one's faith in the only thing that can stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun is a dementia not excused by a lack of formal education. Trump is not as much the problem as a reflection of our denying our problems. A me-first mindset is not new to American politics, news media, or elections. Even our Supreme Court has decreed politicized opinion as the whole truth. Also, Trump is not the first crazy elected president. Nixon's madman theory, faking finger on the nuclear weapons launch button to scare the Soviet Union into ending the Vietnam War, utilized 18 real B-52s loaded with real nuclear bombs for a Dr. Strangelove flyover of Sarah Palin's porch. 2016 political and moral losses are indeed a call to action. Attention must be paid to prevent our enslavement to centers of corruption. Not just congressional seats, corporate banking boardrooms, or K Street suites. Corruption is also in exploding airbags and phones, oversimplified breaking news, and snake oil revivalists. Follow the money remains wisdom's true reward for intelligence. Considering the untouchable murderous increase in Capone's Chicago, the moral defeat of fairness, tolerance, courtesy, and equality by immorality and political hypocrisy, and our losses. Champions Cindy Stowell, Gwen Eiffel, Zaha Hadid, Muhammad Ali. Heroes Eli Weisel, Shimon Perez, Nancy Reagan, John Glenn. Artists Prince, David Bowie, George Michael. Harper Lee, Richard Adams, Jim Harrison, Michael Cimino, Robert Vaughn, Anton Yelchin, Gary Marshall, Alan Rickman, Gene Wilder, and with Carrie Fisher, RTD2 Kenny Baker. Our hope is understandably strained. 
But if an American president and Japanese PM can unite in Hiroshima and Pearl Harbor, the remnants of a vile and disorderly 2016 election can defeat Coke red mapping, restore Republican moderates, and fuse together Democrats and progressives. Inspired by the love of Debbie Reynolds, we discover we're as courageous as the Rockettes, J.K. Rowling, Senator Elizabeth Warren, President Barack Obama, standing tall like Standing Rock on a foundation of solid victories. One, the first woman nominated by a major political party wins popular vote by nearly three million. Two, like David standing before the Goliath of dishonesty, inspired by the smallness of bigots, armed with the torch of Our Lady Liberty, we are fearlessly reignited. Three, like a feisty, wise, and full of hope, Princess Leia, we are free at last to love all of God's children—male, female, gay, straight, transgender, black, white, Jew, Gentile, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Asian. May the force be with us, people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, to actively question. To advocate for planet and clean air and water for all life upon it, and dust off the emoluments clause to resist the union of arrogance and ignorance. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice@gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChapaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.